Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. If you'd like to contact us, contact us at info at CheyenneVineyard.com. You can also find out more information about the Cheyenne Vineyard Church at CheyenneVineyard.com. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. You know, I'd like to begin this morning just by saying that if we really enter in during worship, what I'm about to say would be understood and practiced by everyone. I wouldn't really need to say it. Um, Let's back up a little bit. A few weeks ago, Jay asked the elders if we would like to share anything about the series that he's been doing or had done on Revelation chapters two and three about the letters to the seven churches. Or how God had made us wholehearted. And I had to honestly respond, am I wholehearted? Because sometimes I look at my life And I'm not. You know, when we step out of the Spirit, instead of step out of walking in the Spirit, I mean, the Holy Spirit lives in us, amen? Amen. If you are a child of God, the Spirit of God lives in you. You are a new creation. You're a new species. You're something the world had not seen until that happened on the Pentecost. But we can choose whether we walk in the spirit or we walk in the flesh. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that this morning. Well, let's go back to Revelation chapter 2. If you have the slides up, I should have most of the scriptures. I know I don't have all of them. But Revelation chapter 2, we'll begin with verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now to take away some of the uh, confusion about what that verse just means, the verse right before it, chapter 1, verse 20, by the way, for those who are not familiar with this, When scripture was written, we did not have the paragraph divisions, the verses, the chapter divisions, none of that was there. So sometimes in the context, to understand what's being said, you need to go back or forward, but oftentimes back, to see what's been said to get the right context. Jay uses that phrase often, even this morning, introducing the video, he said, I wanna put this in context. Okay, well, chapter 1, verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels. Another translation says messengers. And some believe that's pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 and you realize 
John is having a conversation with the risen Jesus. The description we see in chapter one of Revelation is vastly different than what John was used to seeing. In fact, as I read this first chapter again this week, I realized John knows the voice of Jesus, the Jesus he walked with for three and a half years. He heard that voice, he knew that voice. But when this Jesus speaks to John, John has to turn around to see the voice that was speaking to him, like, who is this? So Jesus had been changed so much in his glorified body that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, didn't even recognize his voice. Okay, chapter two again, verse two. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Do you remember when Randy taught recently, he talked about the pattern that he sees in each of the seven letters. Jesus begins with commendation, with approvals, the things that you're doing right. Unfortunately, some of the churches, there wasn't any of that, but in this case, there was. Verse four. Nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Now who is this one who says, nevertheless I have this against you that you have left your first love? We know again from chapter one that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. We know he is the one who lives and was dead and who is alive forevermore. So we know we're talking about Jesus, our Lord. But in Romans chapter seven, verse four, the slides aren't working. Um, I was trying to make it as easy for you as possible because I am bouncing around from one translation to another quite a bit here. Um, Revelation chapter seven, verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. <clears throat> so the one Jesus who was saying this was, is the one to whom we are to be married. Second Corinthians 11, two says, I am jealous for you, this is Paul writing, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed, or the New International Version uses the word promised, I promised you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So Jesus is the one to whom we are promised to marry. Now, perhaps this would be as good a point as any to say, we are speaking in a figurative sense, a symbolic, well, not symbolic, but a figurative sense. There's nothing physical about this. It's a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. But it's a picture 
of the relationship that Jesus wants to have with his bride, the church. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, who's the wife? Verse 8 says, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's us. We are the future bride of Christ. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This one who said, I have this against you that you have left your first love as our heavenly bridegroom. He's the lover of our souls. So what do you think was in Jesus' heart when he had to say this to the church at Ephesus? What was the inflection in his voice? when he spoke to John. Was he angry? Was he shouting? I don't think so. Let me ask you this. What would it do to the heart of an earthly bridegroom who saw that his fiance no longer loved him the way she had at first? Don't you think Jesus was saddened? Disappointed to see that his fiance no longer loved him the way she had at first. See, that's who we are. We're the fiance of God, if you will. So I think he was grieved. Now, God has always wanted a people who would love him with their whole heart. You know, maybe 30 years, well, probably more than that, maybe 60 years before this, Jesus had taught his disciples in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Now, when Jesus said that, he was actually quoting something that Moses had written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, 1,500 years before that. So God has always been looking for a people who would love him. And when Jesus quoted it in Mark 12, 30, he added a phrase. This is the first of all the commandments. I understand that to mean the most important of all the commandments. So why is this commandment the most important? Well, as I prayed about that, I was thinking of Acts chapter 13, verse 22, where God tells or says about David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. 
Two things here. What does the phrase, a man after God's own heart, mean? First of all, I believe David wanted to know God's heart. That's why he spent so much time with God. And his heart, as a result, had become like God's heart. So if that happens in a person's life, if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will do everything he wants us to do. See, everything flows out of that. I don't know about you, but I was raised in a somewhat legalistic environment where I had to earn approval, I thought. That was the false teaching I received, that I had to earn approval from God. When God's word clearly says that we are accepted in the beloved, we are accepted in Jesus, not because of what we did, but because of what he's done. But when I came into an understanding that I was to live in a relationship with God in which I was confident of his love, that changed everything. I no longer had to read my Bible. I wanted to. I no longer had to do anything because I understood nothing I do is going to make God love me any more than he already does. What am I going to do to impress God? <laughs> That's a rather foolish thought if you think about it. How can you impress the Holy One? the Ancient of Days, the Eternal God, the Almighty. That's a ludicrous thought. So, what should we do if we've left our first love? And Jesus tells us in the next verse here, Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works. Do you remember when you first began to love God? What was it that caused you to love him? For me, it happened when I began to realize how much he loves me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. When I began to experience God's love on a personal basis in my spirit, and my soul began to respond to the love of God, there was nothing I could do but love him back. You can't experience the love of God. Now, it's one thing to hear, hear about it. It's one thing to read about it, study about it, be able to quote scripture about it. Theologians can do that forever. But that's not what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 is a place where Paul prayed for those believers in Ephesus 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Or the NIV says, so that you may know him better. We need the spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, to give us his revelation, his understanding, his insight, so that we know the love of God. It is not an academic pursuit. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the last three words of that verse just say, God is love. The most essential component of who God is or attribute of who God is, is love. Everything else in his personality, if you will, centers around that. I really like Ephesians chapter 3, 17 and 19 in the New Living Translation. Paul was praying again for the Ephesians and he says, may your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. Think about that a minute. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. Other translations talk about being rooted or grounded or established in the love of God. I understand that to mean you're convinced, you're persuaded that God really does love you. Verses 18 and 19. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you will never fully understand it. You can experience the love of God and not be able to put into words what it's really like. That's what God wants, is for us to experience it. And then we can spend the rest of our lives trying to explain it. You see, when our hearts have been captivated by the love of our heavenly bridegroom, we will not be so easily drawn away from him by the world. We are in a love relationship, a bridegroom relationship in which Jesus wants us to love him as he loves us, which is passionately. In that context, how would you respond if someone wrote you a letter and accused you of adultery in your relationship with Jesus? Does that bother you? With me. But that's what James did in James 4.4. 4. He says, you adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Spiritual adultery occurs when we begin to love something other than our lover, our heavenly lover. When we put anything else in front of him, that's why it says, clear back in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the one that you are to love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now the word world in James 4.4 obviously doesn't mean the same thing as it does in John 3.16. You know, with that verse is one we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God loves the world. But the word world there, I believe, refers to the people who are in the world. It's actually the same Greek word as is used here in James 4.4, but it means something entirely different. And I believe the difference is found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. John wrote, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. That is what we are not to love. So going back to James 4.4, what does friendship with the world mean? I think there are three things, agreement, approval, and adoption. We agree with the world's way of thinking, we approve of the world's actions, and we adopt the world's lifestyle. Clearly contrary to scripture. As far as agreement with the world's way of thinking, Psalm 1.1 in the New Living Translation says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand, in the, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. So we are not to follow the advice of the wicked. We're not to agree with them. As far as approval of the world's actions is concerned, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we've already talked in the past some of the current issues in our society where we need, we're being called upon to approve of certain lifestyles that God's word condemns whether it's a sexual sin of some kind, whether it's, you know, there are all kinds of things out there. But the whole point is, we need to stand firm on what, call what God calls evil, evil. Adoption of the world's lifestyle. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Part of the verse says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. 
So we're not supposed to come into a place where we adopt the world's lifestyle. We're not to conform to it. The J.B. Phillips translation says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Don't, don't become <clears throat> like the world around you. I believe it's 1 Peter 2.9 where Peter says that we're a peculiar people. Now the word peculiar, you need that. sometimes the words in Scripture have been, they don't mean the same now as they did then. But in a funny sort of way that makes the point that we are different. We are a unique people is what it means. So again, if we've discovered the pleasures of loving God, we'll not be too, so easily turned away or lured away by the pleasures of this world. I love Psalm 1611. It says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's joy in the, in the presence of God, and there's pleasures from being at his right hand that are not explainable to the, the rational mind, the natural mind. Now, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolish to him, foolishness to them. Only the Spirit of God can give us understanding I'd like to turn for just a few minutes <clears throat> to um, a few things that I think are true of those who love God. Okay, sorry. Now, when I give you this, I want you to understand something. This is not a to-do list to legalistically attempt to follow in order to prove that you love God. Remember the legalism I mentioned before? Okay. You will not be able to do these things in the power of your flesh. How do you think your lover, your wife, your husband, whatever relationships you're in, how would they respond if they knew you are only doing this because they felt that you wanted them to and that um, you just wanted to have peace at home and you didn't, you weren't really, that really filled with love for them. You weren't doing it because you were loving them. You were doing it because it was convenient for you. Okay, but on the other hand, these scriptures do give us a way to evaluate the condition of our hearts. And they can help us to examine ourselves to see how strong our love for God is. First of all, if you think about people that have fallen in love recently, you know, they're, 
And my wife and I have been married for a little over 35 years. So maybe the experience of love that we have now is not quite as, um, what shall I say? <laughs> you know, it's like I'm not always, like I remember one time I was out on a job and I pulled a picture of my, of my fiance at the time out of my wallet and I was just sitting there on her break looking at her picture thinking about her. Some of the guys kind of gave me a hard time when they caught me doing that. <laughs> you know, but maybe I'm not quite as, uh, I don't know how, what the proper word here is, but you know what I'm saying? It's changed over time. Now, there's a commitment level between us and an under, understanding of each other. We want to do what's best for each other. We genuinely love each other now. Before, I think I was somewhat infatuated with the idea of how could this person really love me? You know? But people who've just fallen in love do a lot of the things we're going to talk about. Let's turn, first of all, to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 in the Amplified. <clears throat> the point here is that if you really love somebody, you're going to want to know them, you're going to desire to know them. The Amplified Version says, for my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. That was Paul's heart. He really wanted to know his Lord. See, the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. At least that's one way in which he does reveal himself. So if we really want to know him, <clears throat> we'll eagerly study the Bible to learn all we can about him. Some people have called the Bible God's love letter to us. But we'll also want to spend as much time with him as we can. Now, it's one thing to read a letter from your lover. It's another thing to actually get to hold their hand and look into their eyes. Today's expression for this is hang out. You know? <clears throat> but the Bible uses words like fellowship or commune. The point is to share our hearts with him and allow him to show us his heart. Knowing him, then enjoying him. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. The Westminster Shorter Catechism said <clears throat> that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Remember Psalm 16, 11? There's joy in his presence. There are pleasures at his right hand. We can enjoy him. John Piper wrote this. He changed the wording just slightly in the Westminster Shorter Catechism to say, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. 
See, if we have a great God who loves us, we can glorify him by just showing the world that we enjoy him, that we enjoy being in his presence. If we love God, we're going to desire to please him. John 8, 29, Jesus said, I always do those things that please him, talking about his relationship with the Father. This was so important that Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, writing to the Thessalonians, said about himself and Silas and Timothy, we are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. And he told them a little bit later in the same letter, chapter 4, verse 1, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So this was important enough to Paul, Silas, and Timothy that they actually spent time training the Thessalonians about how they could live in a way that would please God. But the desire to please God is what comes when we love him. When we love him, we want to talk about him. Mark, or Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's in your heart is going to come out. If you never talk about Jesus, is there a problem there? Maybe so. If all you can think of is baseball, football, hunting, politics, whatever your pastimes are, and you never talk about Jesus, maybe there's a problem. What we talk about reveals what's in our hearts. You might say something like it's found in Psalm 111, verses 3 and 4, because many of the Psalms describe God. These two verses say, Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. So there are things you're going to want to say about this God who loves you, just because you want to tell somebody how good he is. Another thing couples in love do often is shower each other with presents, right? To the, the ability, to the limit of their ability. You know, when I was 35 years ago, I was not able to do a lot of gift giving to my wife, unfortunately. But um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Our giving shows what's in our hearts. Now, for those who are uneasy with this subject, I want you to understand, I believe it's at least 20% of the New Testament speaks about money. That's not all about giving. Some of it's about saving. Some of it's about, you know, there are things in there about uh, 
the way governments should handle taxes. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things in Scripture about money. But giving does show what's in our hearts. If you really love God, you're going to demonstrate that by giving. And if we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. But giving to support God's kingdom work puts our money where our mouth is. I mean, it's easy for me to say, I love you. It might be a little harder for me to open my wallet and hand somebody some cash. Okay? One thing that Jesus specifically said, another mark of a lover of God, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, he didn't quite say it the way I just said it, did he? If you love me, you will. <laughs> no. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, it becomes easy to obey God if we're doing it motivated by love. If we're doing it motivated by legalism and a sense of duty, and I've got to do this or I'm not going to be accepted by God or by my church or whatever, there's no power in that. And it will not last. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul said, Once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. See, obedience is a heart issue. If we have our hearts right, we will obey. If we don't, it's going to be difficult to obey. And we obey him because we want, again, to please him. Another mark from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Paul said, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if we love God, we're going to live to glorify him. We're not going to try to draw attention to ourselves and build our little kingdom. We're going to glorify him. One thing that's helped me at times is to realize that if what I'm going to, about to do isn't going to glorify God, I probably shouldn't do it. Right? Now, <clears throat> if you're using your own Bible, you can turn to Psalm 63, because most of what I'm going to say from here on, and we're getting close to being done, is from Psalm chapter 63. You know, maybe I'll just read through all six verses that I'm going to share quickly, and then we'll go back and look at it. Psalm 63, verse 1. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Now going back to verse 1, there are several expressions here that David uses. He says, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. He was passionately pursuing God's presence. The prophet Jeremiah promised, prophesied, and God promised, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. If you really want to know God and you pursue him, he will reveal himself to you. Verse 2, Psalm 63. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. That brought to mind a verse in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 John. John said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. See, it's one thing to see something, it's another thing to look at it. Sometimes you look right past things that you should catch. The Greek word that's translated looked at, and I've taken this from the Keyword Study Bible, but it means to behold, to view attentively, to contemplate. It is regard for something marked by a sense of wonderment, a contemplative and ponderous gaze, which carefully and deliberately observes an object in order to perceive it correctly and in detail. It involves more than merely seeing. It is noticing, recognizing, and taking note of something with reflection and acute interest. So you're really, really looking. One thing I still have to do is look into my wife's eyes. I don't just glance, I gaze. Sometimes I just downright stare into her eyes. That's the way we need to look at our God. We need to behold him. Verses three through five of Psalm 63. Several expressions are used that talk about praise and worship. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands, which is a physical expression of praise. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With seeing lips, my mouth will praise you. (sighs) 
We're moving toward a time in this body. We will be so focused, so enraptured with the love of God and with the presence of God. We won't care about anything else. The presence of God will become so real so tangible. We will not be able to leave his presence. We're not going to be able to preach. When our eyes are focused on Jesus, it would be rude for me to stand up and draw attention to myself. God wants... God wants that kind of love from his bride. We were close this morning. Really close. We were almost there. And believe me, I would be glad to just keep worshiping. <clears throat> Last comment from Psalm 63, verse 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. When you love somebody, you can't help but thinking about them. So where does your mind go when you don't have to be thinking about anything else? Quite a long time ago, Jay spoke about changing your homepage. What's your homepage? No? When your mind is blank, where does it go? If we love God, I believe our minds are going to be turning to Him. So as the Lord Jesus looks at us today. What does he see? Does he see that your heart burns with wholehearted passion for him? Or what do you have to say, I have this against you, that you've left your first love? As I alluded to earlier, there are times when I've left my first love. And I've had to remember and repent and come back. But the amazing thing about our God, 
The book of Hosea talks about a God who is married to Israel and who pursues his relationship. He had Hosea marry a prostitute. And by her back, when she became unfaithful to him, and love her again. And that is a picture of the love of God for us. So if your heart is rejoicing in God's love, and you love him this morning with all your heart, God's pleased. He would say to you, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let your heart be established in my love. Now there are days coming, we, we, sung, we sang a number of songs this morning about the Lord's return. And I long for that day. But the days before he returns are going to be some of the most challenging days the church has ever known. We will live through the most difficult times in history if we're still here when this all occurs, which I'm beginning to think is going to happen in the relatively near future. What that means, five years, 50 years, I don't know. That God wants us to be faithful during that time unto death. And he promises that if we are, he will give us the crown of life. If this morning you are not walking in your first love, your bridegroom, the lover of your soul, He still longs for you. He still loves you. He wants you back. And he invites you to repent, to turn to him with all your heart, to turn away from all other lovers. He wants you to walk away from the sense of guilt and shame and condemnation and accept his love for you. Just accept it. You can't earn it. When you do, you're going to find, again, the joy of being in God's presence. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and move among us. Have your way here. 
Father, encourage your bride. Strengthen your bride. Reveal more and more of your love to us. Father, if there are any of us here this morning whose hearts have turned away from you, even minutely, we're just not walking in that passionate love for you that we should. God, would you show that to us? Would you enable us by your spirit to receive your forgiveness and your cleansing and to walk back into fellowship with you? God, I know you want your church to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you want us to step into full bridal partnership with you, to do the works of your kingdom. So Father, teach us, lead us, empower us, help us to be the bride that you want for us to be. Lord, I know that you're looking into our eyes. And you're wanting us to look into yours. To see your love. Father, I just ask all across this room that you just do that now. Give us a download of your love, God. Help us to understand, to receive, to experience your love. Father, when we are sure of your love, I know you want us to enjoy you, just to come into your presence and just hang out, just be with you, just to let you shower your affections on us. God, I pray that we'd be able to step into the kind of relationship with you where we just enjoy being with you. We just want to be with you. We just want to know you more. We care about the things you care about. We want to do the things you want done. So God, I ask by the power of your spirit that you'd empower us to do the works of your kingdom. God, I ask that you'd prepare this body for the days that do lie ahead. God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and not on the trouble around us. And I thank you that you protect your bride. I thank you that you take care of your bride. 
Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. This morning, if you need prayer to walk through some of this, we have our prayer team available to you. Um, if you have other needs that you would like to have prayer about, whether you need a word of encouragement or a minute prayer for healing, whatever you might need this morning, we invite you to come and receive ministry. Sometimes I wish my personality were a little different. I'd like to be a little more upbeat right now because there, there is a joy in Jesus. There is a joy in the love of God. But I just sense that there's some who maybe do need to repent this morning. And um, if that's the case, God loves you. He wants you back. You know, he's not throwing stones at you. He wants you to come running back. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We can come boldly to God knowing he will forgive, he will cleanse, he will empower us to live the way he wants us to live. So there's no shame. Just come. Thank you. Ernie's right this morning. Uh, loving God isn't something we can muster up within ourselves. We, we need God to love God. And this morning, if, uh, if loving God is, is something that seems kind of far away, then I ask you to grab a hold of this. And, and say, God, I want to want to love you. So meet me there. Or if, if you're aware, uh, the passage in Revelation speaks, and, and you find that your, your love is not burning for God like it once did, then then I invite you to say, God, reignite that flame. Reignite that passion. And give me more love for you. As he, he can and he will.
that he he loves those prayers and the bride who has made herself ready in revelation 19 is is people like us who have have become overcome and overwhelmed by who God is and and people who have experienced him in in his reality so lord i i ask that for all of us god that you would give us hearts that burn hearts that hunger for more of the reality of you hearts that hunger to be used by you to bring heaven to the people of our city and and beyond so just come holy spirit of god and minister to our hearts and take us further take us deeper for the glory of your Son. So we want to see him glorified. Amen. So, yeah, if we could have the prayer team come up here. We we believe in healing and we practice healing here. We, we see it happen a lot. And if you need a word of encouragement, we'll we'll have a prophetic team over on the other side. Uh, if you just need someone to talk to and pray with, uh, you can come up and talk to anybody up here. So, Lord, just let your blessing come upon these people. Father, let your presence go with us as we leave this place and as we go into the city tomorrow, I just pray for your kingdom to come in our city, wherever we go, to bless you and see you receive what you want in Cheyenne. In Jesus' name, amen.